future. There are no people. There are no people in the future. No people at all. There are no people in the future. Where did all my people go? There are no people in the future. Let me try my people call. Everybody, everybody, welcome, welcome. Yes, it is Monday, May 23rd, 2022. Welcome to Raging Chickens Out to Coop Live. This is Kevin Mahoney, creator and founder of Raging Chicken. On Out to Coop Live, we talk to progressives, activists, and troublemakers of all sorts, right from our own backyards and from across the country. You can also join us at the end of the week for our Friday Politics Roundup, where we break down the good, the bad, and the ugly in state and national politics. Yes, Amy Connect will be joining me again this Friday as my co-host. I'm so psyched about that. And you can also check out our once or twice monthly The Wednesday Show with Cyril Michaleko. Cyril is a progressive columnist from the Bucks County Courier Times and the Intelligencer, and he's also the editor-in-chief of the Bucks County Beacon. And he joins me to drill down into Bucks County, Pennsylvania, and international politics. You get all these shows by subscribing to our podcast on Podbean, iTunes, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. And you can help support this show by becoming a patron for as little as five bucks a month. Simply go to patreon.com slash rcpress and choose your membership level. You can also help out the show right now by heading on over to our YouTube channel if you're not there already. Smash that subscribe button, like the stream for this show, and hit that notification bell so you know every time that we go live. And if you're listening to this on the podcast, well, make sure to leave a comment and give us that five-star review. It helps other people find the show. You can check out our Discord server, too, as well, and join for chat all week long. That info is in today's show notes. And you want some more PA-based progressive talk? Well, tune into the Rick Smith Show's live stream at 9 p.m. Eastern on our YouTube channel, Twitter, Facebook, wherever you're getting a live stream. And make sure you subscribe to his podcast, too, as well. Check out all his stuff at therigsmithshow.com for the latest across all his platforms. And you got to check out the Sisters of the Night Caucus podcast if you haven't already. And if you haven't already, I don't know what you're doing. Just get over there, all right? The amazing PA women stirring the political cauldron behind this podcast rock the house. And they know where the bodies are buried. Make sure to follow them on the Twitter at, at the Night Caucus. That's at the Night Caucus on Twitter. And subscribe to their podcast on Anchor, Spotify, iTunes, or wherever you get your podcasts. And attention gamers, the Game In, that's with two N's, the Game In is a Quakertown-based, black family-owned black family gaming store. They're friends of the show, and they've got everything from retro N64s, latest consoles, video games for all platforms, collectibles, action figures, Funko Pops, walls of Funko Pops, I kid you not. And kids get discounts when they get A's in the report cards. Can't beat it. Check them out on their Facebook page and follow them on Twitter at, at the Game In. That's with two N's. Got a question about a game, look for something hard to get, shoot them a message at thegameinpa at gmail.com. And a special shout out goes to Jonathan Mann, Jonathan Mann, I'm sorry, who wrote out the intro to our song. Wrote, <laughs> wrote our intro song. Let me try that one again. There are no people in the future. Check out all his great stuff on his YouTube page and follow him on Twitter at, at Song of Dayman. That's with two N's, at Song of Dayman on Twitter. And look, we've got the big launch happening soon um, here. But look, if you want to help us end the domination of right-wing money, tipping the scales to the extreme on our school boards and our communities, well, we've made us easy. We made that easy. We've teamed up with Levelfield.net 
right? To start a PI-based, community-based pack called Raging Chicken Community Fund. Simply drop, drop a, you know, $5 donation, $10 donation, and so on. We've already raised over $1,000, and that's going to do an end around the Democratic Party consultant class and get the money directly to the organizing on the ground, right, um, to the people who need it most. Help us support community organizing and school board candidates that our communities and our children deserve. Well, there you have it, everybody. Um, tonight, um, I'm very, very excited. I've been looking forward to this uh, for several weeks now. Um, tonight's episode of Out to Coop Live, I welcome Sarah Aniano to the show. Sarah um, is a researcher who recently graduated from Monmouth University with a Master's in Communication. Congratulations on that, Sarah. <laughs> Fantastic. Yeah, her work on social media misinformation and the rhetoric of the far right has garnered nationwide um, media attention and she aims to use her expertise in the future to clean up the information ecosystem online. Her new article, Deflection and Denial Following the Buffalo Terror Attack, published by the Global Network on Extremism and Technology, or GNET, looks at right-wing media's response to the white supremacists that killed 10 people at a supermarket in a black Buffalo neighborhood. Aniano was one of, um, one of the graduate student researchers, also featured in the CNET article, The Unsung Force Digging Through Misinformation, who have been at the, on the front lines exposing QAnon, anti-vaccine misinformation, and right-wing conspiracy theories um, for quite some time. Um, she's also spent extensive time covering the People's Convoy of right-wing <laughs> truckers this past March, and that was a hoot. Sarah, welcome to the show. Thank you. Thank you so much for having me. This is really cool, and I'm really excited to be here. I am like absolutely thrilled. Um, in part, we talked a little bit about this before the show, and um, a lot of this is right in the lane of what we've really been kind of pushing on this podcast and trying to focus and digging in. Because in part, we've seen the community around which I live, Bucks County, PA, but really across Pennsylvania. Doug Mastriano just got the nod in the kind of governor, the gubernatorial mm -hmm, race in the mm -hmm. state, um, a Christian nationalist. Um, and so we're seeing this kind of percolation up of this extremis extremism that for a long time had just been kind of ignored. Um, by the kind of mainstream press, mainstream politicos, and so on. But now those fruits are, you know, are, are the, the, well, that's born fruit, I should say. Yes. So before we get into some of the specifics, can you just talk a little bit about, you know, how did you get into, hey, <laughs> I'm going to spend my time digging through the, you know, the dark recesses <laughs> of the internet looking for uh, misinformation? Yeah, um, there is a, a very specific point at which I decided to do that. Um, I started graduate school in January of 2020, and um, a couple months later, I was furloughed from my job and uh, had to take months off of, of everything, uh, school and work, um, and I just had a lot of time. And like many people who had a lot of time at, at that point in 2020 as well, I found myself on the internet a lot, yeah. <laughs> um, and on social media a lot. and. Um, I had, a, I had a group chat going and my friend had texted our group chat saying like, did you hear about Ellen DeGeneres? And she's on house arrest because adrenochrome and she's, you know, sacrificing babies. And I was like, whoa, whoa, whoa. Like, <laughs> this is a funny bit, but like, you're going to have to let me know when it ends so that I can laugh. And it, it wasn't, a, it wasn't. She wow. was actually quite serious. Um, I think that I texted somebody outside of it saying like, she, she for real, like she's really buying into this. Like, this isn't a joke. Um, and maybe I'd heard of it peripherally here and there. It wasn't at all my main focus and it wasn't mm -hmm. even why I started to go to grad school in the first place. Um, but as I said, I had a lot of time. So I used that time, um, to dig into, um, particularly QAnon Instagram accounts 
uh, I was really fascinated with all the different facets, um, how they kind of um, laundered this these very, very uh, nasty ideologies in really pretty Instagram aesthetic. Um, and that eventually turned into me just reading article after article after article, um, almost entirely from, from journalists, about this topic that was still kind of emerging at the time into the mainstream, although it had been around since 2017. So um, it, was, it wasn't until I read a, an article in The Atlantic by Adrienne LaFrance, I think it was called just The Prophecies of Q, and it, she talked about QAnon in a way that really humanized it, and that was really empathetic and understanding, and sought to explore the, the psyche and the, the, what makes it work, um, rather than just to make fun of it, uh, because there is much right. to make fun of. Uh, and that is when I realized that this is a really massive, massive communication event that I could apply to my thesis. And that was when I started studying QAnon and far-right extremism on social media. But let me ask you about this. This is actually a really interesting point. Two things that you said there about, you know, that piece that kind of humanized mm -hmm. kind of what was happening QAnon and not just kind of laugh about it and so on. I, I do you, I don't know, think about how to phrase this. It's like mm -hmm. what I... There is so much to just when you're on it, the face of it, when you're if you are not in this world of QAnon mm -hmm. and you hear some of the stuff that's going on, it seems just completely outlandish, like yes. like nobody could possibly believe this. Mm -hmm. But that's part of the trap, isn't it? I mean, isn't that the fact that it's easy for people who are not tapped in to just dismiss it. So it allows it to have this community on its sofa in this parallel universe. And there's people that, and I remember hearing this, there was a, a deconstructed, did this, um, um, did this podcast focus on QAnon. I remember I was painting my son's room as I was listening to it. And it was the first time that I heard someone unpack it and talk about the people that were involved as opposed to just this abstract, um, you know, conspiracy theory. So do you find that I mean, do you find that kind of as similar thing that the laughing at it is actually mm -hmm. the wrong response, but also kind of saying that, you know, overblowing it to the point where it's saying that, OK, this is like, you know, legions of people are already knocking at our door, but to really focus on what is happening to people in these spaces. I mean, maybe you could talk a little bit about that because that's been fascinating to mm -hmm. me um, on those two ends. Sure. So I, I think that a great number of people who approach the topic, whether they're journalists or researchers or what have you, probably go into it with that angle of, hey, look at this hilarious, ridiculous meme. This mm -hmm. is really funny. Ha ha ha. Let's all laugh at it. And that's, you know, of course that's going to happen because absurdity is funny and a lot of the tenets of QAnon are absurd. Until, of course, you learn what they're rooted in. Things like the Protocols of the Elders of Zion and you know, other things that inform the Holocaust and things that long predate the Holocaust. I mean, once I learned that, I think that's when I realized quite how harmful it was. Um, because, I mean, I hadn't personally seen a lot of the effects of it yet. This was pre-J6, um, so yeah. uh, there was still a lot, uh, you know, coming our way at that time. But um, once you start down that path, you, you start to realize that every conspiracy theory is rooted in some sort of deep history. Um, and they're all kind of sort of uh, connected in a way. Um, one really great book I read, it was called uh, Voodoo Histories by David Aronovich. Mm -hmm. um, 
I mean, that was such a comprehensive overview of some conspiracy theories uh, from the protocols to uh, 9-11. I think that the book was published in 2010, so there's about a decade's worth uh, that's missing still. But um, I think that once again, you learn the historical implications and what similar theories have led to, and that might have been laughed off at the time, too, um, to kind of sound the alarm on those uh, feels more important than just making entertainment out of it. Although, like, I admittedly, it is very entertaining. Right. Uh, that's that's the catch, right? <laughs> that's the mm. catch because it is like hilarity if it weren't so serious and having such an effect. Um, you know, and the other thing that I, I, I meant, this is actually something I meant to ask you about kind of uh, before the show, but this is, um, you know, I mean, I grew up in the punk rock scene in kind of, you know, 80s and 90s, right? Syracuse, New York mm -hmm. and so on. And um there was, I want to say it was Fort Drum, which up there it was just north of there. And there were the kind of, it was like a Nazi skinhead kind of period of time. Yeah. Right. So we had this kind of, you know, that period of kind of white nationalists and white supremacists. They were on there, that skinhead movement and so on. One of the things, so I see these echoes of those movements. And of course, yes. there's, you know, threads that take us through. One thing that, and I don't, I don't know how much of this is my perception of it or if this is actually a fact, but one thing that I started getting taken back by with QAnon and so on is there seem to be a lot of women yes. who are involved in this and I've seen this even in my community it's like the women are are going out first they're the ones who are organizing and so on is that something you find or is am I just kind of having a selective view on this not at all and actually uh, a couple hours ago I spoke to a reporter about women in uh, far-right extremism it's it's something that I've spoken to reporters about before um a lot of their inroad to this topic, whether it's QAnon or, or something adjacent to it, will be things like the Save the Children campaign. Um, things that, like you said, will have echoed the satanic panics of decades ago. Um, so it's a lot of that. Anything that appeals to children and health and well-being um, and family. Um, unfortunately, uh, sometimes that is exactly what um, ropes women into it. And then mm -hmm. they do become important voices and they do become important leaders. 100%. Well, let's let's take a look at one of the examples. Now, this is one of the things that when I really started following some of this, what, some of what your work pretty closely was mm -hmm. when we saw the, the People's Convoy, yeah. which is, just, again, it's, here you go again, right? The People's <laughs> Convoy, which is was ironic. But you were one of the few people I could find that was paying attention to organizational structures, the terms of like the communication networks, how, how people were bringing this together. How organized was this? How mm -hmm. much was this reflect? I mean, and you were one of the few voices that was on the ground that was um, kind of tracking what was happening day to day, both in terms of the communication, but then also on the ground. Can you kind of take us into that experience a little bit? Just noticing when did you start paying attention to it to saying, OK, this thing seems like it's going to happen. And then how would you describe the arc of that event and as it kind of launched, you know, following what happened in, in Ottawa, mm -hmm. then here in the U.S.? Well, first, I'll just say that um, it's it's a common um, question I get about being on the ground. Um, but I didn't set foot in the convoy because I didn't need to. I was never on the ground. I was actually just in New Jersey the whole time. And wow. uh, a lot it's, of people, I swear to God, I could yes. have I could have I would have put money on the fact I that know. you were there. <laughs> no, a lot of people were like, "Oh my god, are you okay? Are you safe?" I'm like, "Yeah, dude, I'm in my house." <laughs> 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 
I'm watching it on YouTube. Uh, so this was, it was one of the, I guess that was one of the interesting things about it was that um, people got to participate in a way that they hadn't really been able to do in movements before that. And Ottawa obviously was late, kind of laid the groundwork for that with these constant live streams. But I mean, look at us, we have, we have all this technology at our fingertips. You don't even need you. They had multiple people on the ground at the convoy participants um, that were just doing this uh, for the good of their friends and family, you know, who maybe they missed them because they were in Hagerstown for weeks or whatever. Um, but then other people who were using it for uh, getting subscribers on YouTube and uh, they were getting like um, money if they were streaming it on Twitch or something. So uh, there was definitely a vested interest in the live streamers who streamed the convoy. But because of their effort, I mean, I got to give them credit where credit is due because right. of their due diligence and streaming nearly 12 hours a day, if not more, I was able to see the convoy from multiple angles. Um, if people were driving, I could look at them or if people mm -hmm. were around the beltway, I could look at them or if people were in Hagerstown, I would just switch streams. There was uh, aggregate streams of, of just multiple in one channel. So, you know, they could you know, moan and, and cry all they want about how the mainstream media was painting them, but we were essentially there. Um, and that's because of the power of social media and technology. So I think that from that standpoint, that was really fascinating. Um, but as for as, like how I got into it, I think that it was at the end of the Ottawa convoy um, that we started to talk about uh, were there going to be copycat convoys? And this is where mm -hmm. I was like, okay, I've studied the rhetoric of pre-J6 um, that I saw on Instagram. And now we have things like Telegram and, and all this platform migration to these alternative socials. How can I look at that and try to use my knowledge to see if there's going to be some kind of other big grand plan mm -hmm. um, in DC again? And so that's when I think I started talking to journalists about what were the predictions and next thing you know, people were coming to me asking like, hey, what's going on with this? What's going on with that? Are they going to, what's, which route are they going to take? Because there was all these maps floating around. So pretty quickly, um, almost entirely because of Twitter and because of my connection with journalists through other um, people in my network, mm -hmm. I became kind of like a, a resource. And I was like, oh, this is interesting. Like, I, I'm just like a, a researcher. Like, I'm not even there. Um, this isn't my job. But I, I did... So I take it upon myself to give the best information that I could give and to do it fairly. Um, you know, if people weren't causing a ruckus in the convoy, I did not say that they were. Um, but I did try to make sure that people knew the historical roots of what they were um, aiming for, which was uh, to eradicate all the mandates in, in the United States, whatever right. those even are. Yeah, and that was one of the fascinating things too, as well, which I th which I appreciated so much of what you were putting out there, is because so often when we're talking about some of these some of these protest events, right? Then uh, people want to say, "Oh, this is just bad; they should shut it down." But like that's a dangerous road to you know Correct. road to hoe right there, right? I mean, Correct. because there were some folks that were going around around the the belt, the Capitol Beltway, and they had the trucks that were going on on the right hand side, and they were mm -hmm. kind of in line. And like, look, if the if if things were flipped. Right. If I was down there kind of um, taking part in a, in a protest. Right. I would demand on my rights, too, as well. Yeah. So there was that in terms of an active protest, an active kind of movement of gathering in the field. Um, what seemed really interesting to me um, was 
the mask mandates seem mm-hmm. to well, how would I put this? It's like the mask mandate seemed to be the rallying cry, but it seemed to bring together people from all these disparate parts of, yes. you know, this this ecosystem, if you will. Can you talk a little bit about what you saw from, you know, who was there, who was taking part on this, and could we talk about it as a thing, or was it a conglomerate of issues that seemed to be showing up on the ground there? Well, I guess I would preface that by saying that um, I actually was studying anti-mandate well, I call it the anti-mandate movement. It's not mm-hmm. quite the anti-vax movement because it's mm-hmm. very much rooted in COVID and things like vaccine mandates and mask mandates that didn't really exist um, before uh, in this way. So I was coming off of, of months of actually ethnographic in-person research uh, at anti-mandate rallies in New Jersey. And um, what I saw there was really similar to what I saw in, in the convoy. Um, to address one common question, people asked like, why is it is it all truckers and i was like no it's not all truckers it's actually mostly not truckers at least in in the in the u.s iteration of it um it's anybody and everybody it's moms it's doc it's nurses that have been laid laid off of their jobs it's there are some truck drivers it's people who are you know are just taking time off work some people did the whole way from uh, adelanto california to hagerstown some people only joined part of it and then went back so when people ask like who you know who was in the convoy um it's pretty much reflective of you know every other movement i mean was it almost entirely white people yes mm-hmm. but um you know besides that i think it's really hard to um uh kind of essentialize them i i will say that as much as they called it a nonpartisan, apolitical group of people it was clearly not right, right? 100%, yeah. Yeah, I was clearly right-leaning, if not far-right, um, if not, like, extremists. There were Proud Boy associations. Mm-hmm. Uh, I think the Boogaloo Boys showed up one time. So there's definitely, like, some coordination there. But for the most part, it was mostly just people who really, really didn't agree with the mandates um, that were implemented in the United States, which, again, is kind of confusing because there was, like, no real sweeping federal mandates, and it was so different from state to state. So. Right. That part was confusing too. Well, that I think it also showed me just the the power of the the you know the right wing media infrastructure really mm-hmm. um, because you know to get people like you know moms or people to take a week off from work to show up to something like this which you know it did not really have a central plan in many ways you know it was like come to DC and what there was almost entirely no plan I think that's what kept people asking so many questions like what's going to happen what's going to happen i'm like i don't know they don't even know man yeah they're just they're just hoping (laughs) that somebody figures it out as they go along and if you look at the last week they're still trying to figure it out so (laughs) right exactly (laughs) like 100 Um, but you know but that's also the part of it you know when you talk about the huge like the like the humanistic or you know the humanizing part Mm -hmm. of it is i remember you know seeing some of these interviews that were you know from some of these live streams and so on they were talking to some of the people that took this time off from work and they kind of seemed lost i mean and again i don't want i'm not not talking about everybody i'm saying but there was some of these interviews they felt lost and what I've what's been remarkable, like, you know, studying some of what's happening in the right wing, this, again, this right wing media infrastructure is that there's there's folks who know how to capitalize off this stuff. Mm-hmm. They know how to make some serious bank and it is a pure oh, yeah. grift. Right. Yes. And they're making 
big money just kind of buying into this. And what they depend upon are, you know, being there and streaming and keeping and ramping up this. But then there's this mm -hmm. whole other layer of people that are kind of roped into this and that the people's convoy, once you had the people on the ground sitting there in a field trying to figure out what's going to happen next, it just kind of seemed to be, yeah, this is kind of where we're at. We've got, we've got some organizers, you've got the opportunists like the Proud Boys and so mm -hmm. on who are clearly influencing this because they see this as cover yep. for what they want to do. Yep. Um, and it, but it's just, people are, it seems to me, it's like people are getting brought into this and being taught um, a particular kind of worldview and perspective once they go down these rabbit holes. And then very often at the end of that rabbit hole, they find themselves that they're staying there. People are like, well, wait a minute, I thought we were going to do something. And mm -hmm. then to find out they've just been had. I mean, I, I mean, yeah. I don't know. I mean, that's just kind of more commentary than anything else. But No, I mean, that's uh, when people talk about cults, um, they'll often talk about uh, Festinger, who came up with cognitive dissonance theory. Um, mm -hmm. And he came up with that in part because of his work uh, called When Prophecy Fails, when he and some other colleagues studied this like end times cult. Um, and they saw what happened when the prophecy did not come to pass. And all these different strategies that they did to keep people believing, um, such as... Uh, Oh well, only the only the real believers will you know see this to to the end, or um, you know you you've alienated yourself from your families. We're your family now, and some of those things like verbatim were said by the organizers of the convoy, like Brian Brassi, for example. Although I think that he has very much stepped away from what's happening with it now, um, but you can see uh, the People's Convoy was a really good example of seeing which which members of that group were so believing that they were going to overturn these mandates, that they were willing to um, endure really terrible weather conditions and like uh, deliberately drive around the Beltway, which is really all they ended up doing, just because they really, really believed in what their leader told them would happen. And it just didn't and it still has not happened it still has not right no, it's, not um, it's out to. there there is still a trucker driving around someplace right yes. of still like looking for the correct location because they found out they just didn't believe hard enough and right that was the problem. right <laughs> but uh it's crazy well yeah so on the one hand we've got something like the people's convoy now this this past week we've saw um, the other end of that, right? Um, something that doesn't end up in, you know, a just weird kind of plan or, you know, event that's got no place to go into yet another, you know, mass shooting by a white supremacist yes. um, in Buffalo. And you just had a recent piece on this deflection and denial following the yes. Buffalo terror attack. And um, one of the things that I found really useful about this is talking about the almost like the media cycle, like what are the rhetorical strategies mm -hmm. that we're seeing here and how the mainstream media is actually kind of caught up in this process, right? So could you walk us through a little bit about, you know, what you're doing in that piece and why you wanted to draw attention to what was happening in the media? So I wanted to first draw attention to what conspiracy theories were happening in the wake of the Buffalo shooting. Um, and that is really common. It's not uncommon at all for misinformation to circulate following a, a shooting, especially today. Um, and so I wanted to highlight how people were reacting 
mostly on far right spaces, um, but on occasion in some like farther left spaces too, um, and how that was damaging uh, the cause and how that was maybe helping uh, kind of fuel the fire of more misinformation. And I also wanted to shed light on, um, you know, why we don't necessarily need to talk about the um, manifesto itself and the shooter it's, uh, himself, um, because those things don't need any more oxygen than they've already gotten. Yeah. We need to look at the next step and how to prevent it from happening. So that's kind of what I was trying to do in that piece for GNET. Yeah. And one of the things I found kind of interesting is there's like a set of moves, right? I mean, it's it's pretty standard. I mean, you kind of go through this where you say, okay, we have, now we see like Candace Owens coming out mm-hmm. and Jack Prozobiak. How do you say his last name? I always forget. His, I always mess his name up. I say P- Posobiak. I'm not Pisobiak. sure if that's, if that's right either. All right. So everybody out there between sure. us. <laughs> Take a vote. <laughs> One of them is kind of closer <laughs> than the other. I was with that. Yeah. But it was true. Like the first thing, it's like out of the gates, it's like saying, okay, both siderism, right? So mm-hmm. we have this side and we have this side. The other side does it too, and we're going to point out hypocrisy. That seems to be, say, move number one, right? Right, correct. And then it, and then it goes on to say, okay, now we're going to um, just, you know, show that well, maybe it's not, you know, just the both siderisms. Maybe it's actually propagated by the left, right? It was, it's right. almost the identical thing that we saw happen after J- January 6th. Right? It's, it's saying like, well, what a Black Lives Matter when they mm-hmm. were kind of burning cities down. Like, well, that's just the same yes. thing. Or this is really was Antifa who went in there and they yes. kind of the fall. It was the same playbook. And I think that the reason for that and something that I kind of uncovered in my thesis work um, by looking at the co- comments that predated the Capitol riots on Instagram and QAnon spaces is that they didn't come up with that idea after the fact. They were actually already primed to believe that. So they were they were told like watch out for any violence, watch out for any activity. It's going to be Antifa, it's going to be the cops in cahoots with BLM. Um, and it is the same exact thing that happened with the convoy and it will happen again in whatever next iteration of of far right movements there is. Um, and again, they they do that as rhetorical cover so that they can go back um, and kind of retroactively say, hey, look, we, we, we aren't doing the violence. We already knew that Antifa was going to do it. And meanwhile, you know, Antifa had nothing to do with it. So, um, yeah, it's, it's, I initially thought that they were just trying to like cover their asses after the fact, but mm-hmm. actually they already believed it. That's fascinating. So, yeah. Now, how does that play out in this situation like the, the Buffalo shooting? Right. Is this that the the right wing media is so already has got that ready to go that as soon as something like this happens, they don't even need to think about the details. They don't even need to think about the specifics. They're just going to go to that mode no matter what. I think that's pretty accurate. I mean, it doesn't take nothing that they're saying is novel. Mm -hmm. Nothing that they're saying is creative. And by they, I mean, uh, the right and the far right media in particular, people like Tucker Carlson doing whatever they can to deflect and pivot our our attention from the kind of uh, anti-Semitism and racism that informs uh, people like the Buffalo shooter um, and immediately to, well, they're just doing this. They're just uh, highlighting this because they want stricter gun laws. And it's like, well, first of all, why wouldn't we? Ten people just lost their lives. Um, And it's only been, what, like a week? Right. since that happened and and have you it, it's certainly been recycled 
right? In, in the news cycle, I, I see more about Amber Heard and Johnny Depp than I have about Jesus that. Jesus Christ, enough yeah. of that already, I know. by the way. Um, Sorry. <laughs> no, no, I understood. I mean, this is what extremism researchers deal with a lot is that we say like, hey, like, this is bad. This is bad. This is really bad. We need, to, we need content moderation. We need some kind of um, consequences to this hateful rhetoric online and social media. Um, and then this happens. And then they say, oh, man, that's a damn shame. Who could have seen it coming? And we're like, yeah, we, we did. Hello? <laughs> Here, here's the stack of things that yeah. we've researched over the past two weeks right? yeah. Just to, to point in this direction. Yeah, exactly. And so... Um, I mean, it's it, it, there's a lull in it now, right? But it'll it'll happen again. It's going to happen probably in the next few months. That seems to be the the timeline, if not sooner. Well, exactly, exactly. And this is what um, you know. Th this is that the point I think a lot of us get to is we get to this point and say, "What the hell can you do?" Mm -hmm. Right? Um, I mean, on the one hand, you know, one of the things I you know I teach rhetoric, right? That's kind of my yes. kind of area, rhetoric and social movements and things like this. And one of the things we always talk about is this like this cycle of despair. It's like one of the, uh, mm. my co-author, like Rachel Reeder and I wrote this book called Democracies to Come. And in that, one of the things we were talking about is what happens in these kind of cycles of despair where people get outraged, right? Then they start doing this research. Uh -huh. And then there's all this money on one side of the debate. So when mm. you're taught that you have to look at both sides, Right. Um, the one side is well funded, well organized, well, quote unquote, it gives the appearance of accurate research. I think you're left there kind of, you know, you're showing up to the gunfight with a butter knife. Right. That kind mm -hmm. of thing. And so then eventually what happens is that you say like, well, well, unfortunately, that's the way things are. Unfortunately, that just it. And then despair is what covers it. Right. Mm -hmm. And then the cycle continues. Right. So then there we are. Here sure. we're going to be in another couple of weeks. Um, and this is going to all happen again. So. The information itself, and of course, we know by folks who do cognitive psychology and things like this, where, you know, simply showing the facts yeah. <laughs> doesn't get us there. No. Right. Um, and, you know, uh, and this sounds, I mean, it's like obvious in some ways, but I mean, the only thing that seems to be that is going to change this in any ways is that we take this information, we take this background research, and then we put it into action and organize for power. Right. right. I mean, that's the only thing I could see. But I mean, what's your take on that? When people are saying like, okay, Sarah... I see all this stuff, but like I'm at my wits end now. Mm -hmm. Like I'm sitting here, I'm horrified by this, and I feel like I'm stuck. Right? Um, yeah. How do you talk to people about what? Where do we go from here? Yeah, the the most honest answer I can give is that we are, we are not sure. When I say we, I mean like the researcher community. Yep. What exactly needs to be done? But we know where to start. Um, fact checking is important. I don't think that we should discard that. But there also needs to be um, some training in, in journalism. Um, there is something, uh, a, a data that was collected by um, Whitney Phillips, who was a wonderful scholar. It's uh, in a, uh, it's actually available online. I think it's called uh, the Oxygen of Amplification. So it's such mm -hmm. like a PDF, um, but of this of this study uh, where she tried to kind of figure out how journalists felt following like the 2016 election and how they felt that their own role in amplifying things like the far right memes and the Pepe the Frogs and, and all that stuff, you know, how they felt that may have contributed to the election outcome. Um, and so now we're, we're trying to think of that now. So um, 
journalistic framing again like i said is is one fact checking is another and then i personally um well i'm glad that you brought up rhetoric because um that is what my thesis applied was a uh, rhetorical analysis by a scholar named martin camper um he wrote something called uh, the interpretive stasis of argumentation which is an extension of classical stasis theory um and i'm very proud to say that I'll be presenting this work this weekend at the uh, Rhetoric Society of America conference. RSA. <laughs> the nerdiest of the nerds gather. I'm going to send all my friends words. to your session that I know yes. where we're going. So. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Um, so I'm super stoked about that. And one thing I'm going to talk about there um, in you know regards to my work is that um, a lot of uh, misinformation and extremism research is quantitative. And that's important, and we need that. Um, but I have done almost entirely qualitative research. Um, and I really do think that studying rhetoric is important for content moderation. Um, I've been talking on Twitter for the past week about how in the manifesto, there was a there were screenshots from this Instagram account. Um, and I'm not going to say what the name is, because mm -hmm. I don't want to give it oxygen. Yep. But um, the purpose of the account is uh, to, to troll. Purpose of the account is to push the trope that Jews are all uh, powerful and they have all the money and all the power and control in the world. But the account manages to do this and push this anti-Semitic theory, um, veiling itself in irony. So it oh, actually God. sounds like we are celebrating all these wonderful Jews. Look how great and powerful and smart they are. They have all the, they own all these companies and these higher ed institutions. Wow. Um, and I, I've talked about this particular account for, for months, um, kind of seeing how harmful it was and how popular it was. But no matter how many times I, I flagged and, and uh, reported it on Instagram, it, you know, it was it always came back with does not violate the community guidelines. So when I saw that very account in the manifesto, I was really, really mad um, because that uh, is an, where we can apply rhetorical theory. Um, one of Martin Camper's uh, Stacy's that he uh, writes about in his work is called Letter versus Spirit. So basically, when you look at a text, um, are you interpreting it based on its letter? You know, what's literally written there? Or are you basing it on the spirit or the intended meaning behind it? Irony is a really uh, obvious example of this. Mm -hmm. So someone says something, but they mean something else. Right. That is all this account was. And it is at least one of many seeds that were planted in this kid's brain that led him to go and murder people offline. Um, and so that is something I'm going to try and talk about this weekend and something that I've been trying to push, which is that content moderation teams need to understand these more subtle rhetorical strategies used by extremists to veil their language and to veil their intent um, in order to subvert and avoid uh, the censorship online. I don't know that AIs can do that just yet. Right. And that's why we need more humans working um, on these platforms that exist only on the human experience. Right. And ideally well-paid union jobs too, as well. Yes. Uh, not the people <laughs> that got thrown into, uh, we saw the horrors of what's happened in the Facebook's content moderation yes. rooms 
Um, yes. I, I've I've never read so much more horror stories mm -hmm. and uh, seen some of the coverage of what happens in those things. But yeah. yeah, I mean, having and that what again, that's just another way of saying this stuff needs mm -hmm. to be taken seriously, mm -hmm. right? And the, how do you do that seriously? You get people in there that are kind of that are experts in there. They're going to do this well, um, and that can track this down. I mean, that that's a horrifying example because you can see how that could easily get around any kind of any kind of mm -hmm. AI content moderation because it's just just joking right you know yeah. it's like another version of like mm -hmm. tucker carlson's like i'm just Correct. asking questions exactly the same thing yes and it's still up it's still up the account's still up unbelievable yeah so one thing I want to ask you before I let you go, I know I'm already kind of uh, hit uh, running up into my my Ooh. time limit. Time <laughs> but, flies. Yeah, yeah, exactly. <laughs> so I mean, now if you had to kind of look ahead and say this summer, and we're coming up under the 2020 uh, 2022 midterm elections yeah. and stuff like that, are there things that you're paying attention to now that people should be watching for? Um, I mean, I mean, one. You gotta follow Sarah, obviously, on her on Twitter. <laughs> if you really want to know the full deal, make sure you're following her on Twitter. In, info and the link for that is going to be in the show notes for today. Um, but are there things that you're paying attention to, and that you're kind of got your eyes on, or think people should be having their eyes on in their communities? I think that one of the biggest things we should be paying attention to is the safety of election workers. Um, we saw how 2020 went down and that is guaranteed to have long-term implications in all elections going forward. Uh, last year in November, I tracked the um, telegram activity of groups in New Jersey and Virginia um, because of the gubernatorial elections there. And I will promise you that there will never be another election like pre-2020 ever again. Um, election fraud theories are going to come back um people are going to get threatened who work at the, at the ballots and i think that we need to keep their safety in mind and we um beyond that we should obviously pay attention to what seeds is the far right media planting already um, that is going to sow doubt in the election in the election um and um i mean i guess not just the gubernatorial elections but at every election going forward how are they going to sow dis uh, doubt in that process well and i think that you know it's uh it's certainly the case that i think we i think need to hold on to our own history here and to know that that this kind of extremism that we cannot take it for granted we cannot mm -hmm. assume that it's just going to go away or we're just going to be some sort of return to normal um yeah. just like you know it's a good thing just like you know, COVID's completely gone, right? <laughs> right. <laughs> meanwhile, I know four people this past week who already got COVID. You know, it's the oh, same kind yeah. of stuff that we've got to hold on to that the idea going forward. Sure. Yeah, I think that COVID is kind of a metaphor of what's happening. This kind of viral spread of, of something that we think is going away, but it's not. It's not. So just don't throw away the masks, right? Yeah. Extend the metaphor, right? Yes, exactly. 100%. Be vigilant. Be vigilant, 100%. Yeah. Well, listen, Sarah, I really appreciate your time tonight. Um, and I'm so excited to much. hear that you are going on and you're going to be presenting this at RSA, yes. uh, Rhetoric Society of America. I mean, I think this work needs to be everywhere. Um, and the fact that you're finding a space kind of within kind of the academy, right, to be able mm -hmm. to do some of this work that's having such an influence into the world as it is, um, yeah. I think has always been the move that I've always hoped to see. Um, so uh, congratulations on, on your work Thank and kind you. of where you're going for here. 
And everybody out there, you got to make sure you follow her on Twitter. That's at CoolFaceJane. Um, that's on Twitter at CoolFaceJane. Make sure you follow Sarah. Um, her work is indispensable. Um, and when you follow her stuff, you're also going to get connected with also a bunch of other folks. You're going to see uh, where this work is being done so that we can kind of arm ourselves moving forward, right, to immerse ourselves in folks that are trying to kind of alert us to what's actually going on so we can prepare ourselves locally in our community. Um, so, Sarah, thank you so much for joining us tonight, and best of luck to you going forward. Thank you very much. Again, it was a real pleasure to be here and stay safe out there, everybody. Yeah, and I'll see you on Twitter, that's for sure. Yes. <laughs> all right, everybody, this is Kevin Mahoney, editor and founder of Raging Chicken. Um, thank you all for tuning in tonight. Uh, thank you all for uh, the follow. Make sure that you kind of get this stuff out. Make sure you follow Sarah at Cool Face Jane on Twitter. We'll see you next week. See ya! I'll fly.